Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The dream is made real. Ricky Hatt rocks the world. How do you like it? How do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger no, no. and I'd kick your ass. It's over. Mamma mia. He's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. Uh, let's get ready to rumble. Welcome back to BTR Boxing Podcast Network. Special episode for everybody listening. I have got a absolutely fantastic guest coming on our show today. The voice of boxing, Colonel Bob Sheridan. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for your time and your recovering uh, from a short illness. And it's very appreciated from myself and I'm sure from the listeners of this show that you've took the time out to speak to us and talk about your journey and your experiences in this lovely sport. Well, Sean, thanks very much for the kind introduction. Yeah, I'm actually in the hospital right now and uh, I'm all set up here and we get uh, ready to do the podcast and uh, I know you're from Manchester and I picked up that accent and all I could think of is only one... Ricky Hatton. <laughs> yes. The last uh, time I was in Manchester doing the Hatton Costa Zoo fight, it was sensational. It was unbelievable that night in Manchester. It was great. It was. I, I'm going to really enjoy talking about that fight with you a little bit later on in the episode. But, you know, when I got told by Chris Wardrope, who big shout out to Chris, of course, and then obviously Paulie as well, who've coordinated this episode for us and coordinated this interview. You know, I was really excited to have you on because I know all the fights that you've been a part of and all the pleasures and privileges you've had to be so close to some of the greatest fights of all time. And one of our shows is Legendary Nights, and we cover a lot of the fights that you've been there inside for. So what I was thinking was maybe I cross-reference some of those episodes that we've done with the fights that you've actually covered, which I thought was a fantastic addition to, you know, the fact that you've done all these 
events in history. So it's it's going to be great to talk about a few of them as we go through the course of the interview. But I think what I wanted to go to the bottom of is really how it all began, the origins of the Colonel, the origins of Bob Sheridan in boxing and, and just how your journey started out. Well, my journey started out, uh, actually, I was at the University of Miami. I was there as a baseball and football player. Uh, for my first couple of years, I played both uh, football and baseball, but I had to give up the football to concentrate on baseball because I thought I had a better chance. While I was playing baseball, Chris Dundee, who was the promoter and the brains behind Muhammad Ali and all the great fighters of the time, uh, called our baseball coach and said, could you send a half a dozen kids over to sell Coca-Cola before the event? So uh, I said to the coach, can we stay and watch the, the fight? And when they said, yeah, we, you know, we, we couldn't get over there fast enough to see. And then it was uh, Cassius Clay and Sonny Liston. And it was so exciting. I, I sold Coke and made probably three or four dollars, which was a good night's pay in those days. You gotta remember, this is 1960. What the heck year would that have been? 60, 63 or 64. So to pick up five bucks was good. And anyway, I not only did I get that, but I pulled my little Coca-Cola box right up in the ring of uh of Muhammad or, or, or Cassius Clay at the time to sit down and I'm looking around and I'm saying, what in the heck is all this? So this is professional boxing. Of course, it was at the highest, highest level. And that fight at the time was hotly anticipated. And Sonny Liston was a huge favorite in that fight. And uh, of course, uh, People that are uh, over 35, 40 know what happened in the fight. But since we have a lot of young viewers, it was almost the first fight of the century. Ali was involved in about six fights of the century in his career. But this was kind of the first one. Liston was a prohibitive favorite. And so the fight starts, and I'm like, I'm like, just amazed at what I'm seeing and the enthusiasm of the crowd, and beautiful people and the and the dregs of the earth and the boxing crowd and fighters and everything else. And then, of course, it has a strange ending because Sonny Liston injured his shoulder and couldn't come out for the round. And the round before that, uh, Cassius Clay had got some uh, liniment in his eyes. And he wanted to quit. And Angelo Dundee, uh, if you watch the fight, uh, actually threw him off the stool to get him back out there. And they figured they'd take care of the eyes, even if they lost around. He said, just box and stay away from him. Well, as it worked out, the other guy hurt his shoulder. And a lot of people say, well, the fight was fixed. Well, nobody knew how old Sonny Liston was. so. He might have had one of those old man injuries like you see whenever the, uh, you know, they want to have these exhibition fights with older fighters. And nine out of ten times, 
and ends up with some pulled muscle or a pulled shoulder. Nobody knew how old Sonny was. And in discussion with other top boxing people, that's what we think happened in the fight. Of course, in boxing, like no other sport, as soon as something strange happens, and it seems like every big boxing match, something strange will happen. And the first thing they do is they cry fix. Well, they don't do that in, in football in the UK. They, and even though there's been some, a lot of strange plays, now, now the latest thing is over here is two guys were caught cheating in a fishing tournament. So, I mean, it's just wild. Anyway, uh, the fight kick is down. Ali wins the fight, uh, Clay wins the fight, and the next day he changes his name, announces he's going with the Muslims. And everyone says that that's when he became Muhammad Ali, but it's not. He became Cassius X. Clay. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but uh, he was Cassius X for a while. And then he became uh, Muhammad Ali. And uh, that's the name that stuck with him. That was his Muslim name. And by the way, in terms of uh, now Ali, uh, he was uh, a devout Muslim. He really believed in the religion. Even after the, when he couldn't fight anymore during the layoff because of the, uh, the fact that he refused to be inducted into the army, it, it, it shows you that Ali was really serious about it because he gave up millions and millions and millions of dollars. But anyhow, he becomes Muhammad Ali and the rest is history. Certainly is. I mean, we've covered the Muhammad Ali, or should we say Sonny Liston versus Cassius Clay is how we titled our episode for Legendary Nights. And we did so much research for it and found so many tidbits of information out that I don't think is that widely accessible even with the wonders of the internet it was really great to go into the depths of of the whole hype surrounding the sony listed I'll, I'll tell you one about about uh listing because there aren't too many anecdotal stories about him you of course and people in the uk remember reggie gutteridge reggie was a character who had his leg blown off at in uh, the landing in normandy and Reggie was a not only a great student of boxing and a great broadcaster, but a great character as well. So uh, at one of the press conferences involving Sonny, and, 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 you know, the beat guys are well known to the fighters. And when I say beat guys, I mean the guys internationally that cover the fights. They know us. They know who we are because we are in a position to do nothing but help them if they're smart. And so anyway, uh, at one occasion at a press conference, we're all sitting around and Reggie pulls out a pen knife. Now remember the, remember the wooden leg because it becomes important here. So he pulls out a pen knife and he says, hey, Bear, that's what they call them. Sonny, listen, he goes, hey, Bear, if you're so tough, can you do this? And he jabs himself and stabs himself in the leg with a penknife. And Sonny's eyes go like this. Later days, 
he asked Reggie to do it again when he found out what actually happened. He says, Reg, do that again for me, will you? He says, Bear, fuck off. He says, We, I ruined one pair of trousers for you. That's enough. And that was Reggie. And that was Sonny showing a bit of personality that he had his own personality, but he played the role of the bad guy because that's the role they wanted him to play. I mean, he was, he worked for the mob. He would have been a leg breaker for the mob had they wanted him to do that instead of the fabulous amount of money they made with him being, you know, a champion of the world when he uh, did the job on, you know, son, uh, on uh, Floyd Patterson and other fighters. He was a vicious fighter at that time when he was a, a younger man. So how did you get involved with the commentary side? Because we've talked, you've talked about how you first got interested in the sport and, and the hype that surrounded Cassius Clay, Sonny Liston, and everything that was going on around that time. But how did you make that transition from being a fan who was selling Cokes to being a right. guy that, that would end up at ringside commentating on some of the greatest fights of all time. And don't forget, the, don't forget, Sean, this all happened in a short period of time because I graduated from the University of Miami in 1966. That year, I signed a professional baseball contract with the Baltimore Orioles and ended up in the minor leagues with the Miami Marlins of the Florida State League, which is the low-level minor league. But baseball is very tough to get into without spending times in the minor leagues unless you're just a phenom. And uh, so I was with the team and got released as I had a shoulder injury from football. So I got released from the team, and I knew I was going to have to go in the service because I had actually had a uh, uh, an exemption for being a school teacher. Because when I first uh, graduated the first fall after the baseball season, I taught school. And so when I wasn't teaching school anymore, I decided, well, I may as well enlist in the Army. And I went and I enlisted in the Army. And that's a whole different story. So I won't get into that too much. So after my time is uh, done with the Army, I come back to the radio station that I was working for, and they asked me if I knew Chris Dundee and could I get boxing on the radio, live boxing, because there wasn't too much live boxing on the radio anymore. And all of us are people my age, and I'm uh, I'm almost 80 now, but people our age, uh, when we were kids, we grew up listening to boxing on the radio and later for the big fights on television. Because, you know, I lived at a strange time. You know, television was just coming in. For the Ali Foreman fight in Zaire, it was the first time the satellites, there were only four communication satellites, and they're used simultaneously for that fight. So there was also the history of broadcasting, the history of boxing, a lot of things. So I get to call uh, the Tuesday night fights for the Dundees. And being a play-by-play, a blow-by-blow announcer, or let's take Ian Dark, for instance. 
in Doc as a pure broadcaster, and he made the transition from boxing to football or soccer, as we call it, here. And he's just a great announcer. John Rollins, same thing with BBC from radio to TV. And, of course, the old announcers like Harry Carpenter and, and Reggie and guys of that ilk were, were my age guys, and they were my friends. Most of them are dead now, and I should be for the life I've had. But anyway, uh, uh, I get into it. I loved it. And the first break I got was the company that was new into the satellite uh uh, telecast, meaning that you could broadcast a fight the same day if you could line up the timing perfectly. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Which meant usually the U.K. gets screwed. The fights were on at, uh, oh, what, four, five o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, because everything had to line up for New York, not Los Angeles, not Chicago. New York had to have them on around eight, nine, and 10 o'clock at night, because that was the huge audience in New York. In this day and age, London has about 25 million people, so. London would be considered a lot more. As a matter of fact, the uh, the big promoters over there now have such power because the audience is huge in the UK. And you've also had some great fighters. And you still have some great fighters. The heavyweight division without the UK would be nothing today. You know, all, all the top heavyweights are from the UK. I mean, Joseph Parker just got knocked off. So we get a new guy brought in to the heavyweight picture. You get the big guy, the tinker from, from I think he's from Manchester too, isn't he? Uh, yep. Yeah, well, yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's um, by way of Ireland. Yeah, that's the one. But, uh, you know, he's a great character and a great guy. And and he's only young, so he wins the championship. He gets a lot of money. He goes a little crazy. He gets on the drugs and the and the booze, and he realizes you can't do this and stay heavyweight champion in the world. So it was proof that he straightened himself out. And I give him more credit for doing that than becoming heavyweight champion in the first place, beating an aging Klitschko. But he beat Klitschko when Klitschko was considered still at his best. And Tyson Fury 
wasn't expected to beat Klitschko, but he did, and fair play to him. So anyway, uh, going back to, you want to know more about how I get into it? Well, there was a fight that was being broadcast back to England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, and it was Ken Buchanan against a kid from uh, Cuba uh, out of Miami now, Frankie Otero. And so they were going to bring in a big name announcer from New York, but the audience didn't didn't call for a thirty or forty thousand dollar talent fee for a fight of this magnitude. So they decided that Dundee said, "We get a kid down here that can call fights with anybody, any of the top guys." Because as a matter of fact, even then, I'd call more fights. You know, they say I've called. Uh, well, it's written in the books that I call 10,000 fights in my career. It's probably closer to 15,000 now because all that Wikipedia stuff was written years ago. So, you know, that's a lot of fights. And if you don't improve, <laughs> you know, well, I don't care what your job is, if you're a jockey or a, or a rodeo rider or a sheet metal worker or a truck driver, if you don't get better over the years, you better look for another job. And that's the way it was for me. They liked my work, and that led to me getting the fight in Zaire. So that got me immediately from the small time to the big time. And that's how it happened for me. Being that's in the right spot at the right time. That's with a the huge right preparation. transition, isn't it? A huge transition from yeah, going it was to huge, that, but that smaller scale. I was young. I was young. I'd been in the military. I wasn't afraid of anything. And most important, as a broadcaster, because they don't put uh, micro, they don't put erasers on microphones, so you don't get a second. You don't get a mulligan. Nope, right? that's for sure. You gotta go. What you say, and the last thing that really is live television is sport. You know, everything else you can tape and you can redo and uh but sport is live and that's the way we want it because something about live sport and that live national anthem and and by the way the brits have got a great national anthem you know ours is ours is good we love to hear it but the brits and the french they lead the world in national anthems you know? <laughs> and uh so I love to hear the national anthem of the foreign countries, which would be native countries for you. And I think it adds to the flavor of the international part of sport, is especially boxing, because nine out of ten times it's international, at least the fights we get over here. You get your local fights as well. But I had some great fun with guys like Prince Nassim, uh, Ricky Hatton, you know, fighters of that ilk, they were great fighters. And also uh, you had um, Nigel Ben, great fighter. You had, what was the guy who used to walk out with the, with the walking stick? And they called Chris, Chris Eubank. Chris Eubank, yeah. Yeah, and, and guys like that, they were some great characters. And the Irish kid living in England now, and his name escapes me, but he's a, He's in the Irish regiment now, the British Army. And he had that huge fight in Dublin 
and beat Chris Eubank. And I just can't think of his name right now. Steve Collins. Stevie, yeah. Stevie Collins, who happens to be a very dear friend of mine. And when I go to England, I go to visit Stevie. So had I forgot his name in the early stages of Alzheimer's here, Stevie would have killed me. (laughs) So, Bob, that transition then, you've mentioned it. Uh, briefly as to how that started and and then how it got you to Zaire and I I suppose it leads nicely really into that particular fight because and that event not just a fight it was an event and I didn't get to live through it I'm not old enough to have uh, been alive to saw it at the time but I've certainly done many hours of research many documentaries that have been out there many different podcasts that i've listened to over the years and it just even now it just compels me and it's one of them events that you know if you could have been there for it i wish i could have been there for it and you lived through that you got to be the play-by-play in this particular fight And, And, and that and that part sean was just pure luck that i was there because there weren't a lot of young guys that were involved in boxing Everybody in the States was getting into football and baseball and ice hockey. Those are the big sports over here. But in England, the big sports, every country has its big sport. Mostly it's uh, it's football or soccer. And then, like in Ireland, they get their local sport, which is hurling, which is the national sport there. And they got other Irish sports and Irish football. Uh, in Australia, they got Australian rules football and cricket. In India, they get cricket and football. So, you know, every country is kind of unique. And you, uh, as I was preparing to do this uh, telecast today, I learned it was a guy that prepares. And remember I said at the very outset that if you prepare, and it's clean and obvious to me, you're prepared to do just an interview with me. But that's the beginning of being a great commentator. And you are a great commentator. I've checked up on you. I appreciate they that. Said that you, they said that you're pretty good in the bars, too, that you're willing to pay, <laughs> pay for a pint or two. Yeah, it's very important absolutely. to a Nick like me. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. You, it's, it's, it's great that, you know, I'm able to pick your brains and the people that are listening to this show, you know, that they, they've heard our episode. So they, they've heard us do our version of the rumble in the jungle. And we've told all the historical facts about it, all the facts and the figures and the information and the stories about Mobutu and everything that we included in our episode. Oh uh, yeah. Well, Mobutu was some character in, I mean, with his ocelot hat. And then you had guys like the PR guy's name was Shimpupu Shimpupu. <laughs> and he was like a big scammer. You know, you couldn't get your press credential to the last minute. And it was given out in a... And here's one of the biggest sporting events in the history of boxing. And we're all like five hours before the fight crammed into a, a little tiny room that's not as big as my, my suite right here. And about 100 guys in there trying to get their credentials while Shimpupu was trying to sell them to his pals. I mean, it was a how. But see, I got a great sense of humor. So instead of saying, oh, this is a pain in the neck, this is, you know, I say, 
this is unbelievable. And I remember flying back. First time we went over, it was the start of football season. And I had done a Dolphins-Jets game in New York. And then we were flying over. Mabutu sent the Air Zaire 747 to pick up the media. But we had to fly on uh, Icelandic Airline from New York. And we flew to Iceland. And then we flew from there to uh, Trier, Germany, to pick up the uh, Air Zaire 747. And 747s were brand new in the 60s. So it was a thrill to fly on his uh, private 747. But what happened was, as soon as I heard that uh, that uh, uh, Foreman was cut, and there's no way if he's going to cut, because uh, I talked to Angelo on the phone, he said, this fight's going to have to be postponed. So I said, uh, okay, that's great for me. It's not great for the promotion. As it worked out, it was good for the promotion because they never would have been ready to handle the amount of media, the amount of people, the circus around it. I mean, they had the Pointer Sisters and they had they had every black entertainment person in the world because that was Don King's end of it. He was the big promoter. And while he wasn't the promoter of record for that fight, he was the guy. The two Jewish guys, Hank Schwartz and Barry Bernstein, were the promoters along with David Frost's company, Hemdale Leisure Corporation, out of uh, London. And that's who the real promoters were. But then Don King kind of took over. The two Jewish fellas did what they did well, went off, and they did uh, things like, uh, you know, operations in a, in a uh, hospital. And they, you know, something more civilized and uh, and something that they could control the telecast. And they made a ton of money. And God knows what Don King made in boxing over the years. But I'll tell you this, Don King is a much maligned guy. But Don King was a great guy. And there was a time when there were a lot of the black people within the company that wanted to have the face of Don King production to be a black face. You got to remember in this time in the United States, they still had men's, women, and colored bathrooms. They still had a black section in the end zone at the racetrack. They still had black people and white people didn't mix like they do today. And part of the reason for this uh, evolution between black and whites is because of sport and entertainment. It did more for the mixing and the melting pot of the races and people seeing how entertainers got along. And, you know, there were people that were what we call hardcore rednecks that weren't going to, that are still prejudiced to this day and will be forever but it's changed 90-fold since I was a young man traveling through the South in the United States. I'm not proud to say that, but I am proud of the evolution. You had a different situation in England because of the British Empire. You had African countries, you had India, 
you had a lot of black people that came to London because they're entitled to it. And so that helped in the UK as a melting pot. In Ireland, where I was from, it wasn't prejudice because nobody ever saw a black guy unless he was a student at uh, one of the big universities. And then there was more intrigue. A lot's changed. The world has changed dramatically, hasn't it? And... Yeah, but that's but I lived in that whole era. When I first moved to Ireland, we're still farming with, uh, you know, with horses and, and still using oxen to pull carts. And now today it's all tractors. And, but I lived that whole, as I lived the free life of the rover from the Maury's Green Basin to the Dusty Oak Valley. <laughs> I waltzed my Matilda all over. You know the song. Yeah. So going back to Zaire, take me back there and... There's a couple of things I, want, I, want, real I wanted to ask you about a couple of things on this one. Zaire was really interesting. It was like I understood now how a black guy would feel in Philadelphia, New York, or Chicago, or Boston when you'd be in a section where there were no other uh, black people around. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Because in Zaire, the only place where you saw a white face was in the Memling Hotel where the British press boys were staying and where I chose to stay. The rest of the guys stayed out at the Nacelli, which was the presidential uh, palace of Mobutu, and that's where Ali and about half the media stayed. But the British press guys all stayed together. And we stayed at the Memling Hotel because at that time there was a shortage of glass. So they served beer in a bottle, like a quart bottle. And it was like five cents, like a shilling at the time. And so you'd walk in and you'd get everybody you know, it wouldn't cost you two quid to get everybody in the place a drink. And it was a lot of fun. And there's a lot of camaraderie amongst the media. They're all characters. In those days, if a guy got drunk and missed a deadline, the other guys would write the story for him and send it in for him. That wouldn't happen today. There's so much jealousy and, you know, and there's so much jealousy between the electronic media and the print media and the print media for years has hated the electronic media and what's happened. They're all in it now because <laughs> there's more money in it. Uh, a couple of questions on Zaire then. Just one particular factual bit of information that obviously you will be aware of because you was there and it was the moment when you mentioned the cut happened, the fight was to be postponed and put back as a result of that cut and the story that surrounded it, the story that I understand is that 
Mobutu didn't want anybody leaving the country because if everybody left the country, nobody would come back. And that was his big fear that this event would never then take place and it would end up being rescheduled for somewhere else in the world. So the story goes, he made everybody stay, including the media guys, which included yourself, of course. But in reality, how did that really go down? In reality, just like that. That's why I left Germany and went back home because I couldn't go down there and get stuck. I mean, I've been around the world, you know. I knew exactly what would happen. The guys that went down there couldn't come back. They stayed there and reported every day. But they were the heavy beat writers, like the Associated Press, Eddie Schuyler, Pat Putnam from Sports Illustrated. There are a few British press boys that were down there, and they stayed the whole time. And, uh, and yeah, Mobutu wouldn't let anybody leave. Because they weren't ready for the the whole thing. And it was totally screwed up. So had they not postponed that, maybe the telecasts wouldn't have been seen, which where all the money was involved. But in those, I think it was five to six weeks, there was one danger, and that was that it was going to interfere with the rainy season. And they got real lucky because the night of the fight, after the fight, the heavens opened up, and if that fight had been one day later, it couldn't have happened because all the wires were at least this deep underwater. The dugouts to Ali's dressing room were flooded. Everything was flooded. And you know how sensitive it is on television. I mean, what usually is the problem? If there's a problem on TV, 99% of the time, it's sound. Something happens with sound. Because as I'll give you another example. We were doing a fight. It was Ali and uh, uh, the Italian kid up in uh, Scotland. And Stevie Collins was doing the fight with me. And the guys from BBC. And we get knocked off the air with rain. And all of a sudden, Collins disappears. And he scurries around. We get knocked off the air. All of a sudden, we're back on the air. And I said, Stevie, what the hell do you do? He says, I'm a master electrician. Didn't you know that? I said, no, I didn't know that. And he got us back on the air, which was real interesting. And none of the big shots could have got us back on the air, but Stevie Collins got us back on the air. So very similar to what would have happened in Zaire. Everybody would have been struggling. Everybody would have been on top. Everybody would have been fighting, and and it wouldn't have got back on the air. So that was just uh, the luck of the Irish, you might say. So we're going to move forward in the conversation from Zaire. You've mentioned a few little stories. It's well documented, well publicised. You know, during that 1970s period then, Bob, obviously there was a few fights on the list that I've got in front of me that you commentated on, that you was a part of. Some some very notable moments. The Thriller in Manila, uh, Muhammad Ali, Leon Spinks one, Muhammad Ali, Ernie Shavers. Uh, you had Wilfredo Gomez versus Carlos Zerati in there. Larry Holmes, Ken Norton. Uh, Larry Holmes, Ernie Shavers. These are all sort of major fights throughout the 70s that you commentated on so I suppose my questions to you now are like during that 1970s period where you've got all these major fights that happened significant fights and an era which is classed as the golden era of boxing 
what were some of your great moments uh, as a commentator during that period? I remember most of all Larry Holmes, because I happen to think to this day that Larry Holmes is one of the great fighters of all time and one of the great heavyweights of all time. And the proof of that is, is first time I saw him, he fought Ronaldo Snipes in the uh, ice rink in Pittsburgh, and Larry got knocked down. And the ice rink was set up so that I was up above the ring looking down. And at the count of three, when Snipes knocked him down, Larry's eyes were rolling back in his head and his right foot was quivering. And he got up in time to get through the round and ended up winning the fight over Ronaldo Snipes. That's a spectacular uh, display of what kind of a heart Larry Holmes had. Uh, he did it again on the 22nd of June uh, of that year against um, Mike Weaver. Mike Weaver hit him with a shot that I thought took his head off. And very similar to the other fight, he gets up and he beats Mike Weaver. And then the third one, I thought he was dead because this was in Las Vegas when the late Ernie Chavis, who, by the way, just passed away a week or so ago. Uh, Ernie uh, considered the heaviest puncher ever in the heavyweight division. And every fighter, especially the heavyweights, all agree. And I thought he killed Larry. And again, Larry get up and fought well enough to win the uh, rest of the fight, win the round, and win the fight over Ernie Shaver. So uh, based on that, three times where a guy gets virtually, not virtually knocked out, he was knocked out and came off the canvas to win those fights. And therefore, I think he's the greatest heavyweight that ever lived. Till that time, I'd never seen another fighter ever get knocked out and come back and win the fight like that. So is he your pick for the greatest heavyweight of that era, or are you talking like all time, like even over some of the other heavyweights? Well, for me, for me, son, it's uh, it would be all time because wow. all time, all time is the history of boxing for me. Now the jury's still out on Tyson Fury. The jury's still out on several other heavyweights, but from what I've seen to this point, he would be my favorite fighter of all times for the reasons I've just laid out. Now, when I go out to speak, I get a lot of arguments about that, and it makes for a great discussion uh, amongst the people that are in attendance. And I open it up to the public because the public likes to discuss things with me. Not that I try to be controversial, but I try to lay out things that only I would have had the opportunity to see. So I, I worked that in there. What about the 1980s then? The 1980s, a different era. I felt, looking back on it, it was an era where the lower weight categories of boxing shone even more than the heavyweight era. I think the 1970s was quite evidently the heavyweights, but the 1980s... 
I mean, you had the lightweight, you had the middleweight divisions, you had all these divisions in the lower weight categories that came up, and you had the obviously the Fab Four with Hagler, with Leonard, with Hearns, with Duran. You had the likes of Alexis Arguello there, Aaron Pryor. You know, so many great fights. Well, I did the fight. I did the fight in the Orange Bowl with uh, eighty thousand people there between Aaron Pryor and Alexis Arguello. And that had to be one of the best and most exciting fights that I've ever seen. It's hard to say which one was the most exciting because in those days I called them all. I mean, the Julio Cesar Chavez fight uh, against uh, Purnell Whitaker. Purnell beats him the the whole fight. And at the very end, uh, you know, Chavez has a nice finish and gets... uh, a drawer in the fight. There's no way he get a draw in that fight. He was flat out beaten. So King says to me the next morning, Don King, I'm talking about, he said, Hey, Colonel, how about the way he pulled that fight out? I turn around, <laughs> turn my chair around and say, Hey, Don, cut the shit. He <laughs> says, You've been around me too long. He says, Good. I said, That's right. But hey, you're promoting the fighter and I promote you. Because I know where my my uh, uh, bread is buttered. So you had some some great fights that you was ringside for. You mentioned Alexis Aguayo, Aaron Pryor. You've got some other great fights on there. You know that included some of the heavyweights. You did a lot of Larry Holmes fights as well. And then you obviously, when Tyson comes into the foray, uh, into the mid to late nineteen eighties, you did a lot of Tyson's early significant fights as well. Yeah, and don't forget the uh, the fights that uh, the big Marine uh, was involved with, Kenny Norton. Kenny, for some reason, had Ali's number. And Ken won all three of the fights. The first fight, uh, he broke his jaw. Supposedly, there was a missing tooth, but they had never talked about that before the fight. That was in San Diego. Then the next fight was in... Um, the form in California. And that was a very close fight, but Ali didn't win the fight. Norton won that fight as well. It was a very close fight, but Norton won that fight. And then the one in Yankee Stadium uh, in front of about 80,000 people in Yankee Stadium, again, Ali get the decision. And it's easy to see because in that fight, there are a lot of close rounds. Now, the judges are only human beings, and most of them haven't judged a fight as big as that in their life. So to see Ken Norton, and then at the very end of the rounds, Angela Dundee had this thing he did with Ali and Ray Leonard, where uh, his brother, Chris, would hold the stopwatch, and at 15 seconds, they go 15 seconds. And the guys would put on these flurries. And it would leave the crowd and the judges screaming. So if a judge was going to score that an even round or slightly for another fella, and all of a sudden the crowd is going nuts, uh, they had to be influenced by it. You'd have to be. So that's how Ali and Ray stole a lot of rounds. 
So we mentioned a few notable 80s facts. We're not going to go through them all because, you know, we could be here all day trying to do this. But, you know, you've mentioned a few significant ones. We've talked about a few significant ones. You move into the 90s and there's one there's one fight that stands out to me. And I remember this because I, I, I've lived through it and I was only around about 9 or 10 years old when this fight happened. This was Nigel Benn and Gerald McClellan. A night of well, ex- ecstasy and agony. That fight was sensational. The fight could have ended in the second round because the McClellan actually had his number right away. And somehow or other, uh, he was able to hang in there. And by the end of the fight, Gerald McClellan was having problems. And then I see McClellan go down on the one knee, and I couldn't believe it because it looked like he was quitting. And God forgive me, but you can only call what you can see. And I said, I can't believe after this fight that he's going to quit. This was a sensational fight. And then, of course, we found out what happened when he was, like, rubbing his head. He was actually having a stroke. And we all know what happened to uh, Nigel Benn since then, uh, who had a great career. And for McClellan, it was the end of his career. And luckily, it wasn't the end of his life. No, it was a, a night of ecstasy and agony all in the same arena uh, with Nigel Benn coming be, back from the brink. Uh, that would be one of the most brutal fights I ever called that didn't involve a death. I did the Kim Q fight, which wasn't anywhere as near as rough as that fight was. because uh, And there was no death involved. But that fight, there could have been a death involved. It was every bit as brutal as those other fights. I've got five fights in uh, in the case of one of the two fighters of combat died. And it's not fun when you see that. But it makes you realize what a truly brutal sport it is and how when it's just one fighter against another fighter, it truly is the purest form of sport. When all the hype is over and all the BS is over, it's mono versus mono, and the best man always wins. Couldn't have put it better myself. So, just a couple of other sort of mentions of some of the British fighters that you've covered before, before we then move on to quickly talk about another reason why you're on the show, about a, a certain book that's going to be coming out next year as well. So, before we move into that, just mentioning Lennox Lewis, Frank Bruno, Ricky Hatton, Joe Calzaghe, you know, them four names you've commentated on quite a few of their significant fights throughout their career. Just share a couple of memories of, of yours personally. Of, well, of the, moments. Be- the best of the lot based on record has got to be Joe Calzaghe. And then I'm very, very close to Lennox Lewis. Lennox did a great job in some big fights Uh, And specifically, I remember the Tyson fight in Memphis. He did a great job in that fight and keeping it clean enough because Lennox had this ability where he would get a guy in trouble and he'd push him down with both hands and then he'd level him with the right hand. Not the cleanest of efforts, but it certainly worked for my pal Lennox Lewis. Lennox Lewis is a great fighter. And it's hard to say that when Lennox was in his prime, there was anybody better. I mean, at that time, Showtime was promoting Johnny Ruiz. And 
Linux was being promoted by uh, the uh, what network HBO, and because of that, Linux got a lot of the better publicity. And quite honestly, he deserved it. He really did. Lennox was a great fighter in his time. And I've had a lot of fun in broadcasting fights with Lennox. I wish I had the opportunity to do more with him, but he's a great guy. I really am very fond of Lennox. And, you know, all the fighters of that era were terrific fighters that you mentioned and a lot of fun to be around. Frank Bruno was an interesting character in that Frank was the first guy I ever saw actually push Mike Tyson back. In other words, he wasn't afraid of Mike Tyson, the first fight. And then he fought him again, and he seemed scared to death of him. So I don't know what happened between the first fight and the second fight, but uh, something happened to his psyche. But another terrific fighter for England, Uh, a, a great guy. He's had uh, some rough things said about him because I guess he had a few, uh, let's say, mental problems of sorts. I don't know that to be a fact, but that's what I've read. I've never discussed that with him, but, uh, you know, a great fighter in his own right. So we mentioned earlier at the start of the show when we talked about where I'm from, the accent, you mentioned Ricky Hatton. Ricky Hatton Costa Zoo, I mean, we spoke about it briefly before we recorded this interview. And you mentioned, you know, your your sort of memories there. And it was actually one of the biggest fights I went to, uh, being a 19-year-old going to that fight in 2005. It was probably the best was f- fight a atmosphere. Big fight. A big fight going into it. But I knew that Costa was nearing the end and was right at his prime. So he caught him kind of like, oh, you mentioned earlier, uh, the fight between uh, Ali and, um, and um, you know, yeah, the guy. Leon Spinks. Leon Spinks, yeah. Leon caught him at exactly the right time, and that's what happened in that fight, and he caught him exactly the right time. And again, Cost is a great friend, but Ricky hadn't. A lovely guy, a guy who you'd like to sit down and have a beer with. And that's the kind of guy that I like. So we are just going to take a pause to end this episode, ready for a part two with Bob. At the time of recording the episode, Bob was recovering from a short illness and was actually just still in the hospital at the time, bless him. So we wasn't able to cover all the subjects we wanted to cover in that particular recording session. So we are going to be doing a second session and we are going to be talking about his upcoming book and some more great anecdotes and stories from the man, the myth and the legend that is Colonel Bob Sheridan. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and if you have, please do let us know on social media at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. You can also find us on TikTok as well. If you've not subscribed to the audio feed, you can do that on Apple, on Spotify, on Google, on any available podcasting app out there and please, please, please make sure you share the episode once you see it on social media and get ready for a part two because part two is going to be just as interesting as this first part with the interview with Bob and it's a pleasure having him on and I'm looking forward to the next time he does come onto the show to do a part two 
But for the meantime, please do let us know your thoughts on it. You can find Bob as well at Colonel Bob Sheridan on Twitter. So please do go and follow him. He's very active on there now and he's starting to tell a lot of his stories. I know he's been on a couple of other podcasts as well. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of great stories going around about his time as a play-by-play commentator. That's it for this first episode, the interview with Bob Sheridan, and we'll see you next time. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.